there. I'm Misty Denman, part of the Women in the Word teaching team. Really glad that we're getting to study Matthew together this semester. I've loved it. Chapters 22 and 23 of Matthew that we're talking about today have, um, in my imagination, been a series of great battles between Jesus and the Jewish leadership of his day. And I will tell you in complete honesty that as I've studied these chapters, I have seen and heard in my imagination sword clashing um, and sword fights through the entire thing. And that's probably because, I think I've told you before, I'm the mom of boys. They're just about to turn 14 and 16. For most of the years of my motherhood, um, swords and sword fights have been sort of the backdrop of my life. We have still, even at their age, um, these are things that we can't clean out of their room yet. So we have an old wooden sword that was my husband's when he was a kid. Um, not a real one. It's sort of rounded off at the end. We have plastic swords. We have swords that make noises. We have pirate swords. We have colorful swords. We have realistic looking swords. Um, we also have a huge variety of lightsaber from Star Wars swords, those kinds that at least fold up fairly small and you can sort of put them away. And, and I keep hearing that bzz, bzz noise that, you know, is that Star Wars lightsaber noise as we have been, um, as I've been studying this. So in the absence of actual swords, you know how it is sometimes when um, you try to keep your kids away from that kind of thing if they need to be somewhere where that's not appropriate. I've learned that a stick can be a sword, a fork can be a sword, a pack of Smarties can be a sword, asparagus on the dinner table can be a sword. Um, and I'm glad you're laughing now because that was not funny at the nice restaurant with extended family. Um, I learned to savor those things now that they're a little bit older. The series of clashes between Jesus and the Jewish leadership and this week leading up to his death were intense, they were real, and the consequences were um, life-changing, not just for the men and women that were there at the time, but really for us as well. This is a series of verbal clashes throughout these two chapters, and they're the beginning of the culmination of the hatred that the Jewish leadership developed for Jesus throughout his public ministry. Everything that Jesus did and taught really flew in the face of what was valuable to them. This is um, taking place during the last week of Jesus' life. But beginning with the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' words and his actions really stood in direct opposition to the Jewish leadership. While they valued a very external, showy practice of their faith that was rooted deeply in Jewish tradition, Jesus taught over and over that what he cared about was the people's hearts. Jesus' life and teaching were radical, which I love, but for those who were open to it, it was life-giving and it was healing and it was words of hope and life, but for those who chose to close their hearts off to him, the consequences would be severe. And we will see that today. So open up your Bibles with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 22. 
And we're going to begin today by looking at a parable that Jesus taught about Israel's rejection of their Messiah. This was actually the third and last parable that Jesus taught centered on Israel's rejection of him. And this one will specifically expose that shameful contempt that was Israel's um, response to God the Father when he sent them his son to be their Messiah. Most of Israel has missed this truth of John 3.17 that says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So let's look at Matthew 22, and we'll read this whole first parable called the parable of the wedding feast. And again, just Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent his servants, saying, Tell those who were invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their cities. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. So go to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find. And those servants went to the roads and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came back in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are, are chosen. The invited guests here are God's chosen people. They're Israel, and they have refused the king's invitation either because of indifference, just being about their own daily business, or hostility. Now, Jesus' audience would have understood that a wedding feast hosted by a king was an important celebration, and to reject that invitation would have been the height of disrespect. One would have expected the king's response to be anger. But we see here in this story a picture of God's great patience and his grace for his people because after that first invitation is rejected, he sends his servants back out again to call them. Um, this time he tells them, the celebration is going to be so great. I've gone to such great effort to prepare this for you. And again, they refuse his invitation I think it's astonishing that after the second time that the king is refused, he shows another dose of patience and grace. And this time he's opening up that invitation to anyone who wants to come, to anyone in off the streets. Those people who came to his wedding feast that were just um, anyone who was called were the Gentiles. That is us. It was always God's plan to bless the entire world, um, to bring salvation to the entire world, to offer reconciliation to the entire world. But it was supposed to happen through his chosen people. 
they were first to recognize, they were, they were to be first to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. They were the first um, supposedly to um, uh, recognize Jesus for who he was, and then they would have blessed the entire world um, themselves through him. Had that happened, the millennial kingdom would have then begun. Instead, Jesus' uh, earthly thousand-year reign has been postponed. We're going to learn um, and talk much more about that next week. We as Christ followers are still looking forward to that day. But back to the parable and the people who did accept Jesus' invite. So you can't just wear the same thing to a lovely wedding feast that you would wear out to the grocery store. Formal garments were and are still required. And there is historical evidence that it was the custom of a king to provide wedding garments for his guests. In fact, someone even told us in leaders' meeting today that that is still a practice in parts of the Middle East. And it really makes sense in this parable, right, that the king has been gracious and patient um, and would provide um, everything that the wedding guests needed to be there. But... When he walks in and sees that one of those guests has not um, dressed in the way that he asked him to, that guest um, is cast out. He's invited, the king has invited everyone to come, but they have to do so on the king's terms. The wedding guests must be humble to accept what the king has provided and what the king says is appropriate. That guest without those wedding garments has no defense. And because the king represents God in this parable, and we are the riffraff off the street that just come in, we should pay careful attention to this parable here as well. It is the greatest privilege and blessing that God offers us the opportunity to be part of his kingdom. But we must be clothed in his righteousness in order to partake that. Let's look at uh, Isaiah 61.10. We looked at it in our homework also, but I think it's such a great verse. It says, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. That was made possible only by the blood of our Savior. Everyone is invited to be clothed in his righteousness and in his salvation, but only some will accept this invitation. And the consequences for those who rejected Jesus and his call to follow him, both during um, his day on earth and this um, time as well, are the same. That's to be separated from him forever. But for those of us who are part of his kingdom, whom God has called in off the streets, so to speak, when we weren't even looking for him or expecting him, um, we get to live lives defined by joy and by awe and by humble gratitude for this greatest of gifts that he's offered us, his salvation. So for those of us, who, or for those who could understand it, Jesus here is very much on the offense. He is calling out Israel's extreme foolishness and disrespect for God. So I want to pick this theme back up. We're going to continue on reading in verse 15 of chapter 22. Here's a continuation of the clash with Israel's leaders. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him, Jesus, in his words. 
And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Now this was flattery, but it was also truth as well. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they heard it, and they marveled, and they left him and went away. Now remember that the Pharisees are the conservative religious leaders of the day. They're the ones we've been watching um, throughout most of the book of Matthew uh, profess to be the holiest of God's people. In reality, they're the antithesis of that, um, and they have been plotting for a while now to have Jesus killed. They're so bent on destroying Jesus that they're even plotting here together with the Herodians. Now, the Herodians were a group who worked to advance the uh, kingdom and policies of King Herod. Remember that King Herod was an evil man, um, very much hated justifiably by most of the Jewish people. The reason that some of them would have wanted to side with uh, Herod was probably pretty practical. He was the political power of the day, and uh, to be on his side would have probably carried with it um, some advantages and some ease in life. Supporting him um, would have garnered some of his favor. There, this group's alliance with Herod would have put them at very direct odds normally with the Pharisees. They would have hated one another except for now. Both the, Herodi the Herodians and the Pharisees see Jesus as such uh, an enemy that they're willing to work together um, and unite against him, which normally never would have happened. And their method here really is very cunning. They're trying to put Jesus between a rock and a hard place that he won't be able to wiggle out of. Now, there's nothing new under the sun. They ask him a question about taxes. It's a conversation that we often have um, still today. I think it's funny that it wasn't any less discussed then than it is now. And these two groups working together are um, banking on the fact that no matter how Jesus answers, he's going to make some group really angry and turn against him. And they really are looking for a yes or no answer. Should we pay taxes or not? Now, the Jews were heavily taxed by Rome, who um, uh, was in power over them. This was a, a bitter financial hardship for them. So if Jesus is pro-taxation, then they're hoping that all of the crowds that have followed him would turn against him. If he says that he doesn't think that they should be um, taxed in the way they are. That's treason against Rome, and that would be um, or could be uh, punishable by death. And then there's another layer to this as well, which is that those Roman coins that um, the Jews had to pay their taxes with had, um, you know, an inscription of the, uh, of the leader at the time, just like our coins would have, you know, the kind of raised image of a president on it. The Jews hated using those coins because they considered that image of, of, of the king 
like a, a carved idol or image, and they did not like using them for that um, reason. So it's supposed to be a lose-lose situation here. The Herodians and the Pharisees have swords drawn against Jesus. They think they have him, but Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords, and they are no match at all for him. He knows their secret intent. He's not trapped. He says, yeah, pay your taxes. Give to an earthly ruler what belongs to him. And give to God what belongs to God. I love how one um, writer summed up Jesus' statement here. He said, Jesus answered their question by demonstrating that government does have a rightful place in everyone's life and that one can be in subjection to government and God at the same time. Now, the paying taxes part's really easy enough, but what about that second part of Jesus' answer? He says, render or give over to God what belongs to God. Now, in the same way that that Roman coin bore the image of the ruler at the time, God's image is imprinted on his people. I know this is true because of Genesis 127. It's not on your verse sheet, but it says... So God created man in his image. God doesn't deserve a mere tax payment. He deserves our all. Look with me now at Romans eleven thirty six. And from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. And then look also at Revelation 4. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. The Pharisees acted like they were giving God their all, with their loud prayers, with their very public um, giving and fasting. But God didn't have their hearts. In truth, they were in it for their own glory, and Jesus knew it. So they needed to be reminded, give to God what is God's, what belongs to him. I think we need to be reminded of that too, because we too bear the image of God. It's a really basic part of our faith, but sort of an unspeakably great part of our faith too. So what is it that we give over to God? We must give him our everything. We are his creation, and he's due nothing less in just 17 simple words, Jesus answered this question that he was asked. He did it without being entrapped. He taught great and overarching truth about both our civil and our spiritual responsibilities that apply to every person's life. And so what was there to do but for those men to marvel and to walk away? As they leave, a new group arrives on the scene. It's the Sadducees, and they are going to question Jesus about life after death. So follow along with me as I start in verse 23. The same day, Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection, and they mean there an afterlife or life after death. And they asked him the question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and third and down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, or in heaven, in the afterlife, 
Therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all were uh, married to her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they're like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what it was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Okay, so let's look at him for a minute at who the Sadducees were. They were a much smaller group than the Pharisees, and they were primarily made up of wealthy priestly families in Jerusalem. Again, uh, kind of like the Pharisees and Herodians were opponents, the Pharisees and Sadducees were very bitter opponents because the Sadducees really rejected all of those extra laws that the um, Pharisees were all about and very public about. But again here, the Sadducees share that common goal with the Pharisees, that is to get Jesus killed and out of their way without themselves uh, becoming the enemy of the crowds that um, are surrounding Jesus. In that last clash we saw, the Pharisees and the Herodians try to entrap Jesus with a, um, a civil question or um, uh, but here we see the Sadducees try to entrap uh, Jesus with a theological question. The Sadducees did not believe in life after death, and that's probably because they really only took the first five books of the Old Testament to be um, the inspired word of God. And the idea of heaven or an afterlife isn't really developed until further on in the Old Testament. And this notion about marrying a, a, a brother, uh, your brother's widow, comes from Deuteronomy 25. They would have been familiar with it. I want to actually look at that law on your verse sheet. It said, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her brother or her husband's brother shall go to her and take her as his wife. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out against Israel. So family names uh, and your lineage were very important to the Israelites. And that's why this law was written. It was also a really beautiful way for a widow's needs to be provided for. When a woman was left widowed, she would have not had a way to support herself. She couldn't have gone out and got a job like she did now. So this law both provided for a way for a man's um, family name to be carried on um, and not to um, just kind of evaporate. And it was a provision for this woman um, to be cared for. Now, this deal about seven brothers each dying and um, uh, without an heir is really crazy far-fetched. It was a question designed to make Jesus' claim of eternal life seem like a ridiculous thing. So Jesus immediately perceives, and then he corrects their misunderstanding. While the Sadducees don't believe in heaven, uh, they're assuming in this question that if there were a heaven, it would simply be an extension of life on earth. They're not thinking that it would be very different. It is so much more. Look with me at 1 Corinthians 2.9. It's this little glimpse of heaven. But as it was written... 
what no eye has seen nor ear heard nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. That verse speaks of heaven being so much more than um, what life here is. Now in heaven, marriage isn't needed because when we are with Jesus in glory, we will have um, perfected bodies that will not die. Therefore, we won't need to have children that would replace us. And that's what Jesus means when he says, will we be like angels? Notice he doesn't say we will become angels, but this, that we will be like angels because they do not um, reproduce either. It's because the Sadducees have asked him this question having to do with um, marriage in heaven that he's illuminated just this little part of heaven. It's certainly not um, a full picture of what heaven will be. But to prove his point, he uses scripture from Exodus. That would have been a part of the scriptures that the Sadducees should have been very familiar with by their own claims. And he sort of says, hey, Sadducees, you remember when God said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when he says that in the present tense, that means that those men who had been long dead by the time he said it, um, if there hadn't been an afterlife, wouldn't, he would no longer say, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He would have said, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So the use of the present tense there implied that those patriarchs were still alive when God um, said those words. Now, there are more direct references than that to the afterlife later in the Old Testament, but Jesus didn't use those because he knew the Sadducees um, didn't take those as God's word. So I think it's so brilliant of him here to use uh, part of scriptures that um, they would have said was true. He was able to meet them on their own terms and still prove his point. I love the brilliance of Jesus throughout all of these arguments. So there is life after death. The, the issue of marriage isn't going to be an issue at all. And what was the Sadducees' um, response to this? It was astonishment. Again, in just a very few direct words, Jesus wins this battle decisively. He proves his authority to interpret and to explain Old Testament scripture, and that authority is absolute. Now, before we move on, there's something so great here in these verses I don't want us to miss. In verse 29, Jesus tells the Sadducees that they have this whole issue all wrong for two reasons. They don't know the scriptures, and they don't know the power of God. They didn't know the scriptures well enough to remember what God had said in the book of Exodus and how to apply that in a meaningful way to their life. And they didn't see God as good and great and powerful enough to create a heaven that was so much more uh, beyond what our present day world looks like. How would our lives be different if we knew the scriptures and knew the power of God? In Ephesians, Paul um, prays that his fellow believers would understand these things. Look with me at Ephesians 1 on your verse sheet. He prays that their eyes of their heart, um, these were new believers, would be enlightened so that they would know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the measurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. 
you know, when I look at my own life, at both just my everyday anxieties about what I see in the news, about who my kids are hanging out with, and then, you know, the bigger anxieties of life, um, really deeply hard relationships and long-term health issues, um, no matter what those anxieties are, um, when I really know and believe God's word, all of it, especially the part that tells me about the limitless power of God over every part of my life, that's when I live differently than the world around me. Joy and peace and trust and confidence replace worry and fear when we really know um, the power of God in our own lives and when we really know his word. The Sadducees' problem, I think, is sometimes our problem as well. We don't know enough of the scriptures sometimes. We don't know enough of the power of God. But it doesn't have to be the case. When I do go right to God with my stuff, when I go to him um, in his word, when my thoughts are spinning out of control, when I can bury my heart in scripture, when I allow the Holy Spirit to apply that truth to my life, um, I do have his peace and power. When life is hard, that can be true for all of us. No doubt that the Pharisees were hoping that the Sadducees would have been more successful than they were in this second round against Jesus. They weren't, and so the Pharisees go back and try again. And so we really have um, battle number three, or clash number three here. And this time, the Pharisees single out what I bet was one of their best and brightest, their most articulate, their most bold. DSV calls this man a lawyer, which means he would have been a dual expert in both um, scripture or in theology and in the law. That word is used interchangeably with a scribe. And this man asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment of the law? So we've talked several times this semester about the Pharisees' preoccupation with um, minute points of law, both biblical and the man-made ones that they added themselves. So it's not a surprise that they liked to debate the relative importance of these laws. In fact, I think it was... Palm Sunday, a couple of weeks ago at church that we learned, on Sunday morning, that we learned that the Pharisees had identified 613 different laws of Moses, and they separated those laws into categories. They would call um, some of them heavy and categorize those as more important, and some of them light for the less important laws. And so the lawyer wants to know, out of the heavy laws, which is the heaviest of them all? And this is meant to be another theological test for Jesus. But he's actually asking a really great question. What is the greatest commandment of them all? Jesus, of course, had the answer for him. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your mind. And the second greatest, love your neighbor, meaning whoever's around you, as yourself. Now, we're not really meant to separate the heart, soul, and mind out here Taken together, this commandment means to love God, as one writer um, put it, preeminently and unreservedly. And then as for loving your neighbor, there would have been solid responsibility, as there still is, to look out for uh, the greatest good of the people that God puts in our path. And it's out of these two ideas that every one of the rest of God's laws or commandments come. So we know by now that the Pharisees were really good at focusing on a lot of minute little aspects of the law and sort of ignoring the big picture and um, what God's actual intentions were. 
But Jesus' discussion here with that lawyer really puts the big picture back in view because these are overarching truths that any one of us, any one of them could use to guide their actions, to examine their hearts. And the longer I looked at this, the more I thought, you know, I have, and I bet most of us have, some Pharisee in us too. I can major on the minors. I can feel really good about X, Y, and Z small sin that aren't an issue for me while studiously ignoring the real sin that is in my um, heart. So we can do our own heart checks by simply asking ourselves, am I loving God with everything I have? And am I loving the people that he's put in my path well? I actually think this is a great discussion. Now, in the next verses, in 41 through 46, Jesus switches from defense back to offense. And he asks a question himself to the Pharisees. And it's sort of the all-important question. He says, what do you think about the Christ and whose son is he? The Pharisees immediately answer by looking back to Jewish tradition instead of recognizing the man that was standing right in front of him. Um, they answer Jesus saying that the Messiah would be a descendant of King David. And implied in their answer there is the understanding that that Messiah, that descendant of King David, would come and rule on earth as, um, as a sitting ruling king like David did. So Jesus uses Psalm 110 there. That was a um, common and well-understood psalm uh, to be about the coming of the Messiah. And he uses that psalm, again, with this just amazing command of Scripture to teach them the real truth. And he uses just kind of amazing logic here, too. If even David, inspired by the Holy Spirit, calls the Messiah Lord in this psalm, then how could the Messiah just be an earthly descendant of David? Jesus is interpreting this psalm to show he was far more than a human king, and David knew that the Messiah would be more than a human king as well. Now, not so long ago, if you remember a few chapters back, Jesus had asked his disciples, who they thought he was. And Peter had answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. If you remember, Jesus blessed Peter in that answer. Here, Jesus looks at the Pharisees. He asks them the same question. They cannot or will not answer it correctly. Peter's faith and understanding of who Jesus was brought blessing onto him. The Pharisees Lack of faith and understanding is about um, to result in Jesus pronouncing real judgment against the Pharisees in chapter 23. Now with this series of clashes over, Jesus' critics are silenced. Verse 45 says this, And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. So in this battle between men who looked like they were of faith but were really men of this world, and Jesus, Jesus won. He won every verbal clash. He won the decisively. He won them easily. So know this and have faith and be of good courage. When you think of these stories, remember that 
greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Jesus has won that battle in the past. He wins it now, and he will continue to win that in the future, even against powerful enemies. Now, as we move into chapter 23, every one of these men who have uh, so recently thought themselves more clever than Jesus have all slunk away into the shadows. So Jesus now turns away from them, back to the crowds that are around him. His disciples are in that crowd as well, and he begins to speak to the crowds and his disciples. Jesus here is going to warn the crowds in Israel about those leaders that he has just been talking to. So follow along with me. I'm going to read just uh, verses 1 through 5 in chapter 23. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, and do, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. He goes on to give some real specific examples of what those deeds are that they do to be seen by others. Jesus has been pointing out these flaws in the Pharisees for a long time, but in this final few days of his life, he will revisit this issue for the people one more time because it's an important one. In the final week of his life, um, these men who should have been leading the charge and worshiping Jesus have instead given themselves honor and authority that wasn't theirs to give themselves. It should have been honor and authority um, given to God, and Jesus wants to make that really clear to his followers. God desires that those who would, in his uh, name, be leaders of the people would be servants, would be humble, would themselves be Christ followers. And he wants his leaders to understand that we are all ultimately under the authority of God. In this last public time of teaching, Jesus repeats the truths he has spoken before. There is no place in the kingdom of heaven for hypocrisy, for self-exaltation, for self-righteousness, or even for just that thin, outward, external um, obedience to him that doesn't have any heart behind it. Now, at this point, the battles that we have talking, we've been talking about have already been won. I Imagine Jesus, though, standing there still with that sword in hand, standing tall, passionately speaking to the crowds and warning them about the leadership um, that would still be in place after he is gone. He pronounces judgment against the scribes and Pharisees. So I bet every one of us, I certainly do, have a childhood memory of that look, that tone of voice, that phrase that a parent or coach would use, and you knew you were in deep trouble when you heard it. Um, when Jesus repeats that phrase, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, seven times here, there is, this is much more than just a lecture getting bawled out. These are statements of divine condemnation, um, and I think that would have been very clear both to them and to the audience. In the first pronouncement of woe, 
Jesus calls out the Pharisees for misleading recent converts of the faith. Instead of teaching these uh, new and vulnerable believers to obey God's word, to love God, he says the Pharisees have just heaped burdensome laws on their shoulders, which would have made it almost impossible for them um, to really get to God and to understand uh, God's love. And that second pronouncement, Jesus calls the Pharisees out for making evasive oaths that were really tantamount to lies. He should have, or they should have known to let their yes be yes and their no be no. Now look with me at chapter 23, just verses 23 and 24. I think this is, um, again, Jesus is so good with words here. Here he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Those you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. So remember, we talked a little bit earlier about the Pharisees majoring on minor things. Jesus is pronouncing divine judgment here because these men have been carefully cutting off one-tenth of the herbs in their windowsill um, and giving those as an offering instead of remembering the great truths of God. One of those which is um, sort of referenced here is in Micah 6.8 on your verse sheet. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Snipping herbs and giving them as an offering is as insignificant as a gnat. Considering how our lives reflect God's mercy and justice, that's big. That's what should have mattered. Jesus' next two statements expose the Pharisees in very graphic language for looking like righteous men on the outside while hiding deep sin and death and decay and disobedience on their insides. Finally, Jesus calls them serpents, and he exposes the truth that they have even been guilty of murder. And what he knows is that in just a few days' time, they will again be guilty of playing a part in his own death. Now, these are some of the harshest words that Jesus ever spoke. I think it's important to remember here that he is talking to the Pharisees here and not to us or about us. His judgment is reserved for those who reject him and think they have no need for his redemption. Once we have turned our hearts over to God and acknowledged our sinfulness and our need for him and trusted that he paid um, the price for the penalty for our sins, there is no judgment and condemnation for us, um, even if we struggle with some of the same sins that the Pharisees struggled with. For us, there is forgiveness and there is the Holy Spirit in our lives who help us turn from our sin. So knowing and resting and that great truth, I think we should take time to examine our own hearts for our own areas of self-righteousness, for our own areas of self-reliance, and for any place in our lives where we are more concerned with looking good in the eyes of the world around us rather than looking good in the eyes of Jesus. 
let's finish up by reading verses 37 through 39. This is a very emotional passage. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who, have sent to it, who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So here we see Jesus deeply mourn the consequences of his rejection. I picture Jesus standing on a hill overlooking Jerusalem, the capital city of his um, chosen people, his beloved nation. And I think it's with great grief and sorrow that he recognizes and remembers Israel's long history of rejecting God. And yet, he says, for those who are willing to accept it, God offers his love and care and protection. That word picture of a powerful mother bird with her babies under, um, under the cover of her wings is so beautiful. But he does not force himself on anyone. Because of Israel's choice to turn their backs on that love and protection, they will suffer serious consequences in a few years' time. In 70 AD, both Jerusalem and the temple of God will be destroyed. It's probably this event that Jesus is looking ahead to when he says, your house will be left desolate. So in these final days of Jesus' life, he is finished pursuing Israel, but their story is not over. We will look in the next week at what Jesus has to say about those future days when he will return. But for now, he is a king who is so good and so great that he remains faithful to a people who have been faithless to him. And he leaves us here with this great promise that one day God's chosen people will say of him, blessed are you. Jesus will return again and Israel will receive him as king. And that is a great thing. In these passages today, Jesus fought and won a great battle against his religious leaders. He has fought and won a great battle for our salvation on the cross. The victory always belongs to our God, and we can take heart in that. So let's pray. Lord, we praise you today. You are mighty, and you are powerful, and you are good, and you are great. And I thank you um, just for your time among men that showed us so much of who you are and what you're about. God, I pray that you would enable us to be women of joy and of faith and of trust in you. Um, would you help us to speak truth to the world in the way that you spoke truth to us? We love you, God. We are grateful to you, and we give you praise and honor and glory today. And it's in your holy name we pray. Amen.